the smoking section with Scout Latiri and Suni Khalid coming down in three, two, one, mark. rainy day in San Francisco, and this is our inaugural kickoff of our podcast. It's called The Smoking Section. Light it up, Suni. And it's called The Smoking Section because uh, we're just two middle-aged guys who like cigars. And I didn't know that, of course. What are we smoking right now? We're smoking uh, the Olivo V's. Uh, which were suggested to us by the uh, proprietor of the humidor at 2020 Chestnut Street. Usually we'll do Padrones, 7,000, 6,000, or uh, we'll go to the A.J. Fernandez Monte Cristo, which is another favorite. We like full-bodied cigars. But anyway... Uh, well, that tastes good. No, it's a nice smoke. Scott and I knew each other. We were co-workers at uh, KGO. When I started working at KGO, I uh, decided that I wanted to smoke my cigars while I was going to and coming from the store. You're going to tell that story, huh? Yeah, we'll start with that story. Now, I respected Scott, but we hadn't really hung out. We weren't really friends, we were just sort of work acquaintances. And uh, I decided to smoke my cigars. Even though there was a rule against smoking cigars in the cars, I figured if I let the window down, no one would know the better for it. <laughs> so uh, one day, I took out a Padrone 5000, went down to San Jose and came back. And uh, as soon as I uh, came back, I went and started doing my stories. Unfortunately, Scott took the car that I had. And when he came back from his story, he came into the newsroom and very angry, very frustrated, very perplexed, and uh, announced in the middle of the newsroom. Who the fuck is smoking in the news car? It's stinking it up, man. Come on, give me a break. What the hell is going on? At that point, I tried to uh, fade into the walls. I could not. Deborah Monroe, who is our managing editor, uh, who gave me my job in the first place. Oh, it's a nice smoke, by the way. <laughs> asked me into her office, asked me if I knew anything about that. And I figured that if I was just telling her and not the rest of the newsroom, that would be fine. And uh, she told me that this kind of uh, conduct would not be tolerated and that I should desist. <laughs> hey, it was nothing against you. It was just like I couldn't drive the news car. It smelled, man. It smelled horrible. I had to drive around. I think I had to go to the Dublin or something like that. I had to roll the windows down. It was like 30 degrees outside. It was raining, and I was freezing my balls off, and I was smelling the stale cigar smoking had nothing to do with you I well just, i just was like what the fuck this is a communal car man i'm a black man from detroit and I automatically felt racially profiled for my <laughs> cigar smoking yeah so uh, after i came out of uh deborah's office i walked right over to scott i'm six foot two 
about 215 pounds. Scott's about four foot six, <laughs> 74 pounds. So I said, I'm a flyweight, brother. So uh, I just wanted I to say, run real fast. So I turned to him and I said, you know, you got a problem with cigars. He said, no. I like cigars. So I had an extra 5,000 in my uh, breast pocket, so I decided to give it to him. And that was four years ago, and the rest is history. We've been best friends ever since. And uh, that's the thing, you know. Soon he could have uh, gotten in my face and said, Hey, motherfucker, what's your problem? That was the first yeah. thing that I thought about. But instead, his instincts took over. His, uh, his empathetic, compassionate, friendly soul offered me a cigar... I knew you. I knew you were a man. I knew you were a man of distinction. The minute you walked in the joint, I could see you were a man of distinction, a real big spender. So I knew that you would be able to appreciate a good cigar. And that's Basically, all. it was a bribe. Wasn't a bribe. Remember, it was a quid pro quo. No quid pro quo. I gave him, I offered him something for something returned. So I offered him a cigar for his silence. There was no Ukraine connection at all about that. He accepted my offer, my proffer, as it is. And since then, we usually get together once or twice a week and smoke beautiful cigars. Here we are. So what we're going to do in our podcast is we're going to tell stories. We're going to tell stories about our journalistic endeavors. SUNY is uh, well-respected and well-renowned. He was a uh, NPR affiliate. He worked in uh, in Africa and, and the Middle East, and he had some uh, some adventures, some brushes with death. NPR SUNY Khalid is in Luanda. I made it out after about, uh, after about uh, uh, an hour and 15 minutes. There was a lull in the shooting. We're going to talk about that, and we're also going to talk about local news. I'm more of the local news guy in the San Francisco Bay Area. Do you fear for your life and your child's life right now? I do. With part three of a Spotlight 810 series, I'm Scott Latiri, KGO 810. I know where all the bodies are buried. He actually <laughs> relatively... Was there when they were burying, when they were burying some of the bodies. Yeah, yeah. Where there were bodies waiting to be buried. So let's talk about, let's kick it off with a story about, uh, tell us about how you almost got killed. And uh, you, were, you were saved by that, that woman. This is uh, August 1st, 1982. Uh, I was working as an intern for the U.S. Embassy in Nairobi, Kenya, and uh, I had spent the night uh, at the apartment of the woman who would become my wife, and um, woke up that morning, and we turned on the radio, and there was silence on the radio, and we kept kept listening to the radio. There was nothing on. And then we, I went out to the street. My ex-wife stayed in a place called Hurlingham, which is near State House, and it's also near the Armed Forces Headquarters of Kenya. And uh, we noticed there was no traffic on the street. What was going on in Kenya at this point? Well, there was political turmoil over the uh, reign of uh, the president at that time, Daniel Arab Moy. At that time, Moy had been president for about 14 years, and he was iron-handed and uh, repressive, but he was a friend of the United States, so we didn't say anything. But at that point, uh, it was a Sunday, 
And on Sunday, Ken, Kenya is a Christian nation. And on Sunday, congregations will get together and walk in mass to and from church. So we saw two or three groups, large group of Kenyans, walking down Argwick's Kodigus Road. And then we saw them walk back about 15 minutes later. And we knew that the church services couldn't have been 15 minutes. They were walking back. And uh, one note was going on. There was a compound in the back of my ex-wife's apartment building. And there was a woman. She was a Kamba woman. Now, the Kambas are one of the largest ethnic groups in Kenya. But they're also known as a uh, recruiting ground for the senior officers in the Kenyan military. There was <clears throat> The head of the Kenyan uh, army at that time was a man named Jackson Mulenge, who was a Kamba. And um, my wife started to talk to the woman in Kiswahili, and the woman had a large smile on her face the whole time. She was a gardener. And uh, my wife related to me that uh, the woman had told her that a coup was underway. We had heard a few explosions, but not many. And she had a huge smile on her face. And I asked my wife, why was she smiling? She said she was smiling because the head of the army was Kamba, was one of her people. So at that point, we turned on the radio because we figured there would be an announcement. There was a coup. We had missed the actual coup announcement or the aborted coup announcement. And... Uh, they started playing the same three songs over and over again. So I looked across the street at the armed forces headquarters and I saw groups of soldiers going out on flatbed trucks three at a time. Uh, soldiers were armed and they were apparently going to where the fighting was taking place. A couple of jets flew overhead. What I didn't know at the time was that the Kenyan Air Force were the masterminds of the coup they were flying their jets over head to uh, sort of uh, I guess keep the army in line fake bombing runs no bombs had actually been uh, dropped so later on in the day I decided that since I worked at the embassy it would be a good thing for me to contact the embassy in case I need to be evacuated my wife's apartment had a uh, hotel had a, a telephone operator. Telephone operator did not come in because of the coup. So there was only one telephone and that was across the street. It was a payphone, like you'd see in the United States, across the street at a uh, shell station. So I decided to go across the street even though my ex-wife told me that I should not do that. So I went across the street and of course someone was already using the payphone. So I was standing out near some of the pumps with about seven or eight people and um, that's the cable car you hear it in the background we're on my porch in the Russian Hill neighborhood of San Francisco smoking these cigars that are pretty smooth and pretty tasty so what I decided to do we saw one of the trucks was coming back with about three or four soldiers and I decided to get closer to the curb to see what kind of weapons uh the soldiers in the flatbed were carrying. I figured if they were AK-47s, then perhaps maybe uh, this was a sign of uh, some external support um, from Ethiopia or Somalia, which were armed by the <clears throat> at that time by what was the Soviet Union. And as I got closer to the curb, the truck slowed down to a crawl, 
and the soldiers turned their guns on me and about five or six other people. And I looked across the street and my wife was standing on the uh, balcony of her apartment. I could see maybe 40 yards away and I could see by the look on her face, the look of horror on her face. As this what kind of weapons did they turn on you? Actually, uh, they were infield rifles, but the soldier that was closest to me had an AK-47 with a wooden stock. And I remember talking to uh, Leon Dash and Jack White. Leon was the West African Bureau Chief of the Washington Post. He's one of my first mentors. And Jack White. And uh, I wanted to see I wanted to see what kind of weapons they had. But at this point, the truck had slowed down to a crawl. And my life was passing. Life was passing before my eyes. I remember... Leon had told me about attending the execution of uh, the Liberian cabinet in um, 1980 during the coup that overthrew that government. And he told me that um, Frank Tolbert, who was the vice president of Liberia, had been lined up on a wooden stock with some of the other cabinet members. There was a soldier, a group of soldiers, and the first volley of gunfire had killed the rest of the cabinet, but the soldier in front of uh, Frank Tolbert was either drunk or frightened because Frank Tolbert looked him straight in the eye and unnerved the soldier. So I figured at this point, the soldier was no more than 40 feet away from me, maybe 30 feet away from me, and I tried to look at his eyes. If you're going to kill me, I'm going to make this hard for you. I'm going to look at you, and maybe if I look at him, he'll miss me. But of course, if he had missed me, he would have hit the <laughs> the fuel tanks <laughs> at the pumps in back of me, and we all would have gone up in a uh, ball of fire. But I looked at him, I remember trying to look into his eyes and to see if I saw any kind of look of compassion or recognition. And I remember looking at his eyes, and his eyes were completely black, cold. Dead. Dead. Dead eyes. And as the truck got closer, he was about 20, 20 feet away from me. There was a young girl who was closer than me at the curb, and she threw her hand up, clenched fist, the old black power salute. So at this point, I said, I have nothing to lose. So I threw my hand up in the black power salute, and everybody else at the gas station did. And as we did this, soldiers turned their guns away and the flatbed truck sped off and went away. And at that point, I ran back <laughs> to the apartment building, but that was the closest at that time that I came to being killed. Later on that day, there was an intern who worked with us, uh, Shirley Henley, and she lived around the corner from my wife. So I decided to go check on her she had a relationship with one of the Kenyan soldiers. So I talked with her for 15 minutes. And then as I was walking back, across the street from her was the city morgue of uh, Nairobi. And I noticed a flatbed truck had pulled up and stopped in front of the morgue. I had my hands behind my head, but I slowed down a little bit and I looked at the corner of my eye. There were three soldiers in the flatbed truck and I saw them dragging the bodies from the flatbed truck into 
right in front of the morgue, dragging them into the morgue. And I made it back to my wife's apartment, and I stayed there for four days as we waited for the coup to, uh, the aborted coup to fail. So what about uh, when you were with this, uh, this woman and a few other people, and you went out and you traveled? And tell, tell about how um, you were saved by this woman. That was a woman, a young woman, the young woman who was in front. She had, she had raised her hand up. If she hadn't raised her hand up, I doubt if I would be um, making this podcast right now. I think what the soldiers wanted to do, they wanted to see that anyone who was on the ground, they wanted to see our hands and wanted to make sure that our hands did not have rocks or weapons or anything like that. That's why they turned their weapons away from us that day. August 1st, 1982. Wow, so that was uh, your brush with death. I guess I had a few brushes with death. Uh, one time uh, I was called up in the middle of the night, 2 o'clock, I was working at KGO, and they, uh, KGO Radio, which, is, uh, which was a powerhouse of a radio station. It was number one in the Bay Area for 30 straight years, and everybody would listen to KGO for the news and for the talk shows. And I was uh, told that there was a, a shooting in progress. A couple of guys had taken these people hostage in their own home. I went out there. Where was it? This was in Palo Alto. East and, Palo Alto? No, regular Palo Alto, not East Palo Alto. It's a very nice home. and I went out there and um, I heard some shots fired. And the cops surrounded the house and I wanted to get closer. So I ran across the street. And as I ran across the street, I heard the bullets whizzing by and I dove down and the cop grabbed me and said, you get the hell out of here right now. And he put me down and I was just trying to get the sound for the story. But I could have been killed that night as well. Well, actually I had one better than that. Uh, About 10 years later, uh, on my birthday, October 6, 1992, Luis Costa-Rubish and I were covering uh, Angola's first ever democratic elections. Elections have been held, uh, but the rebel group led by Jonas Avimbi uh, disagreed with the results of the election and said they were fraudulent and they were threatening to go back to war. So Luis and I decided that we were going to go out to, there was a Congolese artist market near the presidential palace. And so what we decided to do was uh, we were going to go out and buy some more art, uh, which I no longer have, as a matter of fact. But Luigi had gotten a call that there had been an explosion at the Hotel Turismo, which was across town. This was the headquarters of the rubber group, UNITA. So he had, was called, and so we decided what we would do. We would go over there, file our story, file our story, and buy our art, finish the day. And we walked in. We saw a car uh, which had been laden with explosives and it had blown out many of the glass windows at the front of the Turismo, but the car had not gone over the curb. The bomb blast, the explosion was basically in front of the uh, Turismo. And as we walked in, the UNITA officers took us up to the second floor 
and uh, showed us uh, about a dozen of the government anti-riot police. They were called the ninjas because they wore black fatigues, black berets, always heavily armed. And there was the joke that uh, the ninjas scared Unita, scared the police, <laughs> and scared anybody who came in their way. Uh, several uh, of the families, Unita families, wives and children as young as three months old were inside and as soon as the shooting started they left their rooms it was hysterical confusion bedlam erupted and children were crying and everyone was in the hallway the journalists were trying to to, to huddle in the hallway uh where we thought it would be safe they usually were walking around the streets with bandoleros and 60 caliber heavy machine guns but they had there was a police there was a police station across the street. Police had not made any, any moves to uh, rescue these men. So we, they were showing us off. These guys were handcuffed, in nylon handcuffs around their back. They'd been stripped to the waist, and uh, the boots had been taken away. And as we were interviewing some of these uh, ninjas who had been taken captive, we heard shooting on the street. Police some of the police were driving by in guns, opening fire. So this is my first foreign assignment as a radio reporter. So as a radio reporter, we're always told if it's not on tape, it's not on tape. So um, Louise and I decided that uh, what we would do was we would get to the window and try to stick our microphones out of the window during a firefight to get the sound of the firefight. Well. Back then, we had analog tape decks, so they told us you had to get two minutes of good sound to give the folks in Washington time to uh, mix your stories together. So what we did, we got down on the floor, scooted across the floor, and we stuck our microphones, which could have been mistaken for rocket-propelled grenade launchers or, or rifles or whatever. We stuck them out the window for two minutes. And we counted the two minutes down while all this mayhem is taking place and um, got the sound. But we were trapped inside the hotel because the government was making an attempt to storm the uh, storm the Turismo. And of course, Unita had a detail of security who were firing back from the very windows where we were taking our sound from. And we were trapped in the hotel for about three and a half hours. And uh, during this time, there were about, I'd say, ten reporters who were trying to report on the firefight while the firefight was taking place. AP had already filed the story. They knew we were over there and they knew we were in. So it was actually on the wire that Louise and I were inside. And I remember we were, the soldiers, the Unita soldiers were shuttling up and down the steps. One of them had blood coming from his temple. I guess he had been shot. One they'd have been shot in the leg. And we were trying to uh we were trying to uh write our stories and record our stories, recording people inside the hotel. While the firefight was taking place, uh there was one wife of a Unita general, Violetta Painted Gatu, and she was married to General Gatu who is one of Savimbi's nephews and one of the higher-ups. He was already in Wambu, which was UNITA uh, headquarters. Savimbi had uh, stolen out of town 
and they were assembling in Wambu for a war council. And she came out of her room, dressed in fatigues, with a gun. She looked like Tina Turner, a heavily armed Tina Turner. And she was cursing uh, MPLA, she was cursing the president, and she was actually going into one of the rooms near the street, and she was firing <laughs> guns. And I remember Ana Margarita Matos, who was with uh, Portuguese radio, she was crying at the top of her lungs that we were all going to be killed. And she was crying, and I grabbed her and grabbed her in my arms, and I said, Mar Ana Margarita, Ana Margarita, stop got to stop screaming because we can't work. We're going to make it out of here. They're not going to let a bunch of reporters get killed. So I managed to quiet her down. But even though we were working, we still weren't out and there was no way for us to transmit our stories. But my buddy Louise, being the uh, super reporter that he was, decided to call down to the front desk. Back then you had exchange. You didn't have cell phones. You had regular phones. So he called down to the hotel operator who was still working, who was not able to get out. So we were able to get calls. So Louise got on the phone, called headquarters in Washington. And we, I had some alligator clips, took the phone apart, and we fed our stories. So while the. You while fed the, the stories right through the phone line. Fred the stories the phone line. After he was finished, I told them, told the hotel operator, put me through to NPR. They put me right into the into Recording Central, and I fed my stories and I fed my tracks on the phone while it was out. About an hour and a half later, General uh, Renato Mateus, who was the UNITA command, commander, met with uh, a representative of the government, and a ceasefire was declared. Soldiers were returned, and we were walked out from the street. Uh, and we walked back to the uh, CIAM, which was the Central Imprenza de Annabel de Mayo, which was where all the hacks were hanging out, and managed to uh, file another story from there. But uh, I guess we could have got killed, but we got the story, and that was the important thing. Wow. Facing death as a reporter. That's, uh, that's the ultimate. You're just, uh, you're just trying to get the story, right? It's like, you know, I'm a former boxer, and uh, you're really afraid. There's fear in your heart before the bell rings because you don't know what's going to happen. After the, the first punch is thrown, you relax. Just another day at the gym. And I liken it. I had that training, that mental training. So while the firefight was taking place, I was completely cool and calm. I, was, I wasn't afraid of dying. I was afraid of not getting the story done. So we got the story done. It was only later that day, after Luigi and I got back to our hotel room, we were sharing a hotel room at the uh, El Presidente. It was only then that we just, you know, it sort of shook us that we could have got killed. But after that, it was like, what's the next story after that? You don't really allow yourself. Fear is something that can be used so streetcar again but I always looked up 
looked at as it's a cable car, not a street car. I know you're from Detroit. You don't get that. It's a cable car. It's not a trolley. It's not a street car. San Francisco. You're in San Francisco. You're not in Nairobi. You're not in Detroit. You're not in Baltimore. All the places that you've been, you're in San Francisco. Get that through your thick skull, will you please? Yeah, I'm just a simple Midwest country boy trying to figure out how I fit into this cold, cruel world. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that reminds me of the time that I dressed up as a hippopotamus. <laughs> Please tell. <laughs> I was working at a radio station in San Luis Obispo. Actually, it was Santa Barbara at the time, and it was during the uh, the Ronald Reagan regime. I don't recall. And uh, I was a, I was a cub reporter trying to make my bones, and uh, I was mixing it up with Leslie Stahl and Sam Donaldson when they would come into town into Santa Barbara because you know it was the Western White House. So I met Ronald Reagan. I went up to his ranch. I did all that stuff. How was Sam's uh, to pay back then? Sam was, uh, <laughs> it was a lot better than Ted Koppel's, let me tell you. Anyway, uh, I'm, I'm getting all these stories. I'm doing, uh, covering Ronald Reagan, and, uh, you know, there's the Cold War during that time, and uh, I was trying to get word out about all the all the uh, the nuclear warheads that we had and how Ronald Reagan was a bit of a warmonger, and it was right before uh, the Iran-Contra scandal. And uh, I thought I was, uh, I thought I was, I was... The shit, you know, young young reporter covering sure. covering Ronald Reagan. I am not going to exploit, for political purposes, my opponent's youth and inexperience. So one day I go into work. I'm probably making a thousand dollars a month at this point at this radio station, and uh, we had a uh, a mascot, Henrietta the Hippo, right? User review. Right, right. And uh, there was this kid who was a DJ at the radio station that I worked at who. Uh, who was moonlighting as Henrietta the Hippo, but he got sick. I'm in the newsroom. The PR people come in and they say, Henrietta is sick. We need somebody to, to take his spot. Do you want to dress up as the hippopotamus? I said, what are you fucking kidding me? I'm a reporter. I'm a, I'm a broadcast journalist. I'm doing God's work. I'm not going to dress up as a hippopotamus. They said, yeah, well, we pay. I said, how much? They said, 10 bucks an hour. 10 bucks an hour? No, no chance. Are you kidding me? I'm not going to sell my soul for 10 bucks an hour. They said, well, what do you want? I said, uh, how about 100 bucks? They said, okay. So I said, oh, what the hell? Nobody's going to know this. So I, I got in the Henrietta the Hippo outfit. You know, it looked like, a, looked like a, you know, one of those uh, baseball mascots, you know. The fanatic. The fanatic. I looked like a fanatic, but I was dressed up as Henrietta the Hippo. I had a little pink skirt on. Henrietta lived in the Zamban River with the other hippos. <laughs> Henrietta, it was fetching. But Henrietta wasn't like the other hippos. She was hairy. Henrietta's hairy. Henrietta's hairy. So we, uh, there was an opening at, uh, of, a, of, a, of a mall in Santa Barbara, and so I went down there and I did some PR, and uh, I found that uh, that was my... Uh, alter ego. My alter ego, right? Henrietta Hippo? Henrietta the Hippo. So you told me you were gender fluid. <laughs> I didn't know you were species fluid. That was the only thing that's <laughs> So I dressed up as Henrietta. Was a big splash. Made the kids laugh. Made everybody laugh. I was dancing and uh, and having lots of fun. And um, they liked it so much that they offered me the, the permanent gig. I said, what, are you kidding me? They said, we'll pay you. I said, nobody can know about this, right? At the time, I was roommates with a TV reporter, and he knew about it. And he he threatened that he was going to... he was going to He was going to out me unless I did the dishes, right? I said, fine, I'll do the dishes, so I did the dishes. So I, so I was Henrietta the Hippo for about five months, and I went to all these different events. They liked me so much that they hired me to be um, 
to go to this uh, this fashion show in Arizona. So I went out there and I won the contest, all these beautiful people, and I was out there. I made the cover of R&R Records and uh, Radio Magazine, Henrietta the Hippo from KIST Radio. Well, nobody, still nobody knew who I was, right? Nobody had... You're outing know, yourself right now. Yeah, it was a long time ago. Still happened. So um, after that, though, I... I you know, I had to be a, I had to be a serious journalist, so so I gave up the Henrietta Hippo outfit and I turned it in. How do I look? You look like a hippo princess. Wow! Now I can go back to the other hippos. Uh, to this day, nobody knows this. Nobody knows that the Henrietta the Hippo was actually uh, Scott Letary, the award-winning broadcast journalist. Well, you got me beat, man. I've never cross-dressed. <laughs> well, there's still time, Sunny. Still time. All right, and you'll t- we'll talk about more of this in episode two of the smoking section. Uh-huh. Ooh, that was a good cigar. It's all gone now. SUNY Khaled, Scott Letiri, signing out. Give me, give me your your best lockout. SUNY Khaled, San Francisco, California. Scott Letiri reporting live. Adios, hasta la vista, vaya con Dios. <laughs> Spark it up, baby. Let's see what they do.